don't think that you can tell us anything that we haven't heard before, because we're the pod people, America's most compulsive podcast. I'm Mr. Brofistication, Matisse Van Rossum. <laughs> Hi, I'm Cleveland Mosier, and, uh, well, uh, I'm too much of a wimp to be a serial killer, I guess. I'm Ben Cheats, and I'm both a lamb and a tiger, Ooh. depending on the day, <laughs> how much sleep I get. Well, we are very excited to be joined for third time guest of the pod people, uh, Katie from Lambley Optic. Katie, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Welcome back. This is, this is Miss Sophia Stication. Miss Miss Sophia Stication is very pleased to be approaching the house that Jeff built. Yes, yes. Uh, this was uh, a pick. Uh, from Katie this week. Katie has curated this episode, and we are diving into a dark, misanthropic, twisted mind. I'm talking, of course, <laughs> about the mind of Lars von Trier. <laughs> Truly fun for the whole family. Every, everyone's, everyone's favorite Danish misanthrope, Lars von Trier. And uh, as Katie mentioned, we're going to be talking about the 2018 Lars von Trier film The House That Jack Built starring Matt Dillon and Bruno Ganz and uh, a bunch of other people. Um, <laughs> it is a story about Jack, a highly intelligent serial killer who over the course of 12 years murders a buttload of people and he talks about it with a gentleman. A gentleman. <laughs> Katie, in our little bit of chatting before we started recording, you said that you would put this movie in probably your top 10 of all time, like most impactful, like must-see movies. I would love to hear a little bit about your general thoughts on this movie and why you wanted us to talk about it on the podcast. Sure. For me, having been a Lars von Trier fan for a very long time, for that reason that we discussed, the the ability to really isolate and push a particular button, almost almost like the audacity to go there. Lars von Trier, for me, I've always relied on him to be able to get me to a place where I feel like I can work on things that people don't always want to think about or understand. Like it, it can put me in a state of mind where I can confront aspects of the human psyche that that are touched on by other filmmakers but there are other filmmakers that would also show up in my top 10 people like david lynch who would have been an influence for von trier when he's starting with you know starting zentropa making the kingdom for television he says explicitly in interviews you know this is twin peaks uh inspired and and david lynch's work is also you know i I'd, I'd have to sit and really think about which Lynch films are going to go in that top 10 because there will probably be one or two of them. And there are a few other filmmakers that that really push me like that, too. But Von Trier for me is consistent. And sometimes sometimes I make apologies for him, you know, like I love breaking the waves, but it's there's something very lo fi about it that makes it feel almost gross to watch. Like everything is fucking yellow and it doesn't have that aesthetically pleasing format that makes movies more digestible. They're easier to consume when they're really clean looking. Well, I think that's that in particular especially his early stuff is like really indicative of his roots as like one of the founders of like the dogma 95 movement 
and like having you know sort of helping to draft that manifesto that's like about really the vows of chastity yeah the vows of chastity exactly and all of these (laughs) all of these uh these really strict rules for filmmaking that really puts character and story first to the extent that it is purposely trying to move away from aesthetic because aesthetic is distracting. And I think that that's really interesting to see how over the decades he's evolved as a filmmaker, because I think at least his last several films have a very strong aesthetic. They're so fucking aesthetic. And yeah. even, and even, uh, even when he sort of started to move away from that with stuff like uh, uh, Element of Crime, which I think is also extremely aesthetic and stylistic. Yeah, well, what's funny is Von Trier really uses aesthetic, even in his early films, as a part of what he's trying to go at, and they're very meticulous in their intent. And it goes back to, you know, pushing buttons, like you were saying, Katie. Uh, It's very emotionally manipulative at times, but it's so intentionally so. Well, I think when you say intent... Intent is like you're trying to pick up on the spirit of the moment and Von Trier consistently is trying to pick up on the anxiety of the moment as he is able to access more tools to emphasize the aesthetic feeling that I think he always had as a filmmaker. Dogma of 95 for me was like, you know what? Fuck aesthetic because it's so expensive. Right. Fuck aesthetic because it requires so much coordination. I think it was a way of salvaging the auteur and making it more democratic. It's just a way of saying you can tell a story and do it in a very... It's not even skeletal. It's almost neural. It's almost like rather than, you know, when people talk about really going deep on a thing, they'll talk about getting to its skeleton, like its most fundamental pieces and parts. But for me, maybe the. Sorry, I'm I'm drinking this delicious Truly seltzer. Maybe you guys can get a, a, <laughs> a Truly. A I, I'm also drinking Truly right now. <laughs> well, we're getting to the truth of things, so it, it's it's appropriate. And truly, this is, this is blueberry and acai flavored, so it's delicious. Um, I don't remember what I was uh, saying. Getting to the meat of something. Yeah, like, the skeleton. And, yeah, except, yeah. except for me, this is neural. This is You're going to the neurology of the thing. You're pulling out the nerves and finding what makes the whole system just go, what's going on? It's like a tuning fork. Yeah, I think that Dogma elements. 95 allowed you to do that because you're, you're pulling on the sinews of the feeling. You're not just trying to tell a story well and you're not just trying to follow the rules that make something uninterrupted even spatio-temporally for a viewer um for an audience member used to certain patterns that for me was the strength of it even if i don't always love how it comes across i go yeah that was a great thing that was a great thing to do Uh, even though i read that the american critic Armand White <laughs> note that famous troll Armand White. <laughs> 
you know, talked about it being the manifesto that brought filmmaking closer to amateur porn. But I'm like, what's wrong with amateur porn? Plenty of people are into that. And also film has almost a responsibility to be democratic, to tell different kinds of stories that go to something more like the the ground floor of where life happens. I think that's brave. And it may not always make you feel good but fuck you maybe sometimes it's good to feel bad it's good to feel bad about certain things no uh that actually brings up a an excellent point like i was thinking about using the word uh like almost noble to depict the noble rot Ooh. the noble rot yes yeah, <laughs> how about that uh, Ooh. well not in the same way that he, he was bringing it up but well you know the way he described the wine that you get from the noble rot i was like i wonder i wonder if those are the wines like when i buy that cote de Rhone, is that gonna be a noble rot wine is that gonna have like a little funk to it <laughs> um, but the the nobility of showing true violence, like the use of violence to depict something truly horrific. I'm hard-pressed to think of a film where I've been so uh, realistically affected by violence. Whenever I saw, like, the desiccated corpses in this film or, uh, you know, any of those those sequences, I, I felt like I was watching something on the evening news. Even though it's so beautifully framed, the realism of it, there's such a hard light shown on that violence that it forces you to look at it and it forces you to consider who this monster truly is. I think it's fucking sinister because it makes you enjoy it. Ben mentioned the humor of this film oh, yeah. to me. And I, and I thought, fuck, yeah, you know, like the the humor is <laughs> Well, definitely. It's so clear when you're watching it and it it's almost like a makes the medicine go down thing. I'm yeah, sorry. Well, what I didn't the- mean to interrupt that. One of the the interesting things is I would compare this film in a lot of ways to a movie like Funny Games or Michelle Haneke's work, uh, where it's very, you know, emotionally manipulative and pushing your buttons. But the difference between that film and this one is I found this one much more funny, like you were saying. And I think the lightness in a lot of respects almost makes it more disturbing in some ways. Yeah, my my general thing with Lars von Trier is whenever I watch his stuff, like, I've never enjoyed being miserable so much, you know? Like, I've loved everything <laughs> of his that I've seen, but it, but it almost always ruins my day. You know, like, after watching the movie, like, I'm generally kind of in a funk or depressed for, like, the rest of the day. Which is how you guys prime me into going into this film. So I was expecting something super, super dour. Because, like, you know, I think that in many ways, I you know, I've described Lars von Trier as uh, everybody's favorite misanthrope because, like, he has such a bleak and nihilistic and negative view of the world and people that I think is realistic in many ways, but also just like when you're entrenched in life and the world every day as it is, it can sometimes be really exhausting or draining to be forced to observe that kind of depravity so intensely. And I think that there is still a lot of that in this movie, but I was surprised at some of the lightheartedness 
that like I made me giggle a couple of times and feel and I felt bad about it, you know? Yeah, well, especially in the start. The film does a great job of roping you in. Yeah. Uh, cuz like his first mm. kill, uh portrayed by Uma Thurman, yes. uh is oh, not likable wow. at all. And Jack's character is portrayed as really likable, like almost. And uh and mysterious, tall, dark, handsome, etc. Like you he has a lure to him. Right. And Uma Thurman is being just the worst a person shameless to whore yeah. just a shameless <laughs> whore of life i wish i had looked up the reference to this but i know that when this came out someone mentioned it might have even been von trier commenting on the film that this is all jack's perspective right mm-hmm. so this is and i i think about that every time i go to the film he's, even a, he's an jack unreliable is, narrator He's he's the apotheosis of reason at the same time. So you want to be able to rely on him because he's very straightforward and matter of fact about everything that he's recounting. But then you realize that in the absence of feeling, his world is as distorted as someone who's distorting their world with feeling so-called distortion. You know, he's he's devoid and making all the same projections to me was what I got out of that commentary. It was like, yeah, when I was watching the movie, I wanted Uma Thurman to fucking die. I was excited when that Jack hit her face. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, well, she she is portrayed extremely unlikably. Like, she's, you know, forcing him to give her rides to, like, get her Jack fixed so she can fix her. I also find myself going, is it that unbelievable that that would happen? Like, I feel like I've met women like that and just gone, yeah. And she's mocking him the whole way, you know, to saying that he looks like a serial killer and talking hypothetically about, oh, well, if you were a serial killer, I would be an easy victim for you or whatever. And then... You know, you you keep expecting him to, you know, just kill her at any moment, but it's not until she reverses that logic and says like, oh no, you're too much of a wimp to be a serial killer. (laughs) So it's like still mocking him, but then in a different way. And that is what makes him murder her. He seems like he's actually going to let her go. You know, he's trying to actively get away from her. And it's when she says, nah, you're too much of a wimp to be a serial killer. That's like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, I'm going to fucking kill you then. I think you made a really interesting point about the unreliable narration though. You can definitely look at a lot of the elements of this film through that lens, um, but at the same time, you want to buy into it being the actual truth because of how obsessive-compulsive Jack is in the film. And, and seductive how... the aesthetic of the film is. Isn't it seductive? Like, oh, when yeah, I compare alluring. it to Buntrier's earlier work, it's like, God, this is beautiful to look at. Even the jump cuts feel natural. They feel like they belong in that world. I feel like I never leave that world. Well, what I think works with that is the the obsessive compulsive aspect of it. I think Lars von Trier shows that in all of his works. You know, even the dogma stuff, while it's not focused on aesthetics, all of the rules and limitations really bring out kind of the obsessive compulsive nature and the meticulousness of well, von Trier himself. I think even the principle of creating 
a set of hard rules to follow when creating art, which is in so many ways so antithetical to the idea of art. That shows, and rules. That shows a, a high degree of obsessive compulsive nature. <laughs> and in that respect, to compartmentalize it the so man has much. his problems. And I'm not going to say the man doesn't have his problems. Well, well going I, think, off yeah, of, I, I think the most neurotic people oftentimes make the best films. Yeah, and going so. off of, you know, Von Trier being a bit obsessive compulsive, I view a lot of this film as self-reflexive of mm. Von Trier looking at the nature of his own work. Right, and he's interrogating himself. He's characterizing himself as Jack and all of the women that he's killing and Virgil and just going, all right, what am I going to do when this is what my mind is? Well, I mean, it even gets to the degree at one point late in the film where in one of the interludes between the, the incidents, we have a montage that is just all of Von Trier's films. Yeah. It's just a montage of his own stuff. Stuff that Jack did. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the house that Jack, that Jack built. And while he's doing like, while we're seeing this, like Matt Dillon is talking about like the value of icons. And I thought that that was a really interesting, but also quite masturbatory thing for Von Trier to do. And I mean, I think that kind of is like him in a nutshell, you know? That's totally appropriate. Zentrope is straight up making porn, so what can you do, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, if also Trier, he famously if has... If wants to stroke himself in the process, you know, I, I feel like I'd be one of those people who would try to meet Von Trier, try to interact with him in some way and be that quintessential story of um, never meet your heroes. Yeah. yeah. Still, they disappoint you kind of things. Because I would just be like, you know what? I don't think you're a total sociopath. And I don't think that it's irrational for you to have the kind of bitterness that you do have about the world because I see through your bitterness and I see what you want to be able to believe about the world. I feel like the house that Jack built was was him being able to characterize something like the mind and the soul being combined in reason and what the apotheosis of that can be in the absence of the spirit. <laughs> this is like this is like my my grand illusion to to draw out the Jack. It, it's really like he's an expert in all things so quote unquote left brained and he's very effective. He's a very effective human being. He's profitable even. He He's not really offensive to anyone but the people that he's killing and society at large, even though he seems innocuous to most of the people who come in contact with him. So this kind of of psychopathy is, I think, something that Von Trier is exploring about being the kind of artist that he is, being the kind of artist who wants to look at the dark honestly. I think it takes just as much strength of spirit to do that uh, as as reason uh, I, and I think that Von Trier maybe even through the way he relates to or deals with women in his films is kind of doing that he's trying to find out what else what what is not contained in musings of the mind or the soul like okay Jack's going to hell but even if you do see him 
yearn for the Elysian fields, even if you do see him trying to get to the bridge back across to heaven, because of his nature, you just go, yeah, that's where he belongs. That is his house. Everything about how how he's believed and and willed and behaved er, has earned him a spot in hell. Well, I mean, while we're talking about that, kind of, I guess, starting with the very end of the film, spoilers, um, <laughs> I think that what is so indicative of that idea as well is, you know, when Virgil takes him there and, you know, Jack asks what's on the other side of the bridge and he says, oh, you know, it's a way up and out, but there's no way to get across. But, you know, some people have cli- tried to climb around and failed but I just brought you here as like a favor so you could see it. You know, you're actually a couple of rings up, so we got to go back. And I actually wonder if in that moment that Virgil is lying to him because he knows that by bringing him there, Jack's compulsions and his confidence that has, you know, led him to be a serial killer and so confidently believe that he won't be caught, that same compulsion would inevitably lead him to try to climb around uh, around the pit and Mm. fall into the deepest circle of hell and i think that maybe that's where he actually belongs Mm. and that virgil brought him there because he knew that he would put himself there even though he mm. says, oh, you know, I, I, you know, you actually belong a couple of rings up. I, I, I wonder at the truth of that. I, I don't know. I, I'd have to. Well, think maybe about it that's more. just a way of the, of saying like the afterlife tries to, to, to meet you at your level. And if you want to outdo the afterlife in your own depravity, then, you know, go ahead and aspire to the idea that that someone like Lars von Trier would ever be able to be perceived as an innocent. <laughs> you know, he's just I feel for the guy. I really do. I, I have a, a sincere affection almost for von Trier because I think he really he really wants to be able to help other people be better by showing them how it is to be bad. And how banal it can be to be bad. Well, one of the most interesting uh, explorations into Von Trier through this film, I think, is the repeated attempts to build a house and the the creation and destruction over and over that we see as Jack tries to build his own home and eventually gives up and you know yeah he never takes it down before and the end yeah. starts over and this is a recurring thing and i i think you can look at that as von trier trying to get at these core ideas that he wants to you know convey but not quite having the means to get to that true ideal emphasis or expression of these these concepts and ideas and ending up just uh trying again you know well, over and over the the visual metaphor of like the final result of his house uh the the actual like attempt at a house uh being made a, out of people well no not that one but oh. the the other one that it cuts back to when he says like i tried but i never finished it oh, okay. and we see a structure that the three story have... with the one yes 
Yeah, the one on the far left side. And isn't has, that a great like visual metaphor for Jack oh, being so like uh, not a complete person in that like he doesn't have that that feeling. He doesn't have. He's like, almost the, just the like the first of layer of of psyche, like yeah. insect layer. He's 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 at the bones, and that well, totally illustrates sociopath. my. Yeah. Oh well. Absolutely. Well, um, and going off of that too, insect sociopathic. <laughs> going off of that too, you know, it is an empty structure at the end, and I oh. I love the idea of Vontre reflecting on his own work, you know, thinking that he's getting to something grand, but the people around him, you know, viewing his work and seeing some of the surface level, you know, depravity and the the things in the movie more than the the themes and ideas and that being what leaves it feeling empty and all ultimately a failure in mm. von trier's eyes and the world he has to live in what what house can a von trier be home in <laughs> well i do think it's interesting uh that he has said that he believes that this may be his last feature film and that he might interesting just, and that he might just stick to like TV for like the rest of his career. And well, I read that this was originally supposed to be TV, to be yeah. a TV show. Like, like an eight part, like an eight part miniseries or something like that, that he then decided to. And it just makes me wonder, like comparing the like empty house metaphor to like Von Trier and his work and like trying to attain what he would consider artistic perfection but not not reaching there so trying again and it almost makes me wonder if he feels like he attained it with this movie if that he has if this is like the house that he has finally built that he is, now that he's done it he's satisfied I, I don't know. I mean, many directors have said like, "Oh, I'm I'm done making movies after this film," and then they come back and make a bunch more. You know, uh, so I I don't know, but I think there's there's an interesting question in that. Well, I wish I could add I, to it, but uh, this was my first Von Trier. <laughs> oh no, shit, Cleve! I've got to hear what you think. I adored it. Uh, I thought this film was a masterpiece. It truly horrified me. Uh, I think because I found Jack to be so likable, uh, especially at the beginning. After the film was over, I, I said, like, this film's almost a black comedy. And I think, Ben, you said, like, it pretty much is a black comedy. And I think I just, by the end, I was so horrified by those attempts at humor that, like, oh I my couldn't God, even that's find my funny anymore. Like, it was, it was really cool to be, like, roped in like that. Tragedy and comedy, being able to, to like really hone in on the line between those two things is impressive to me. Truly. A lot of fascinating comparisons to H.H. H. Holmes, the real life serial killer, the devil in the white city, who lured people into his massive, like self-constructed hotel uh, and murdered them because Holmes was known to be like very friendly, very like sort of a man about town. And had that same, like, likable, sort of mysterious allure to him that Jack did as he brought people into this this strange house. Matt Dillon just gives an incredible performance. He's amazing. You know, I, yeah. I read that he studied Ted Bundy pretty extensively. Oh, nice. For this. Oh, like in, the, in his speech patterns. Yeah. In speech patterns and also, you know, conceptually. Yes. <laughs> I would like to offer an alternative take because I think it's really interesting 
that you found Jack likable and charming at the start (laughs) because i found him detestable and and creepy from the beginning and i mean i i mean that in in the best way like he's he's an an ideal villain but even from that first scene with uma thurman and we're talking about how unpleasant her character is i also found his way of dealing with that also very unpleasant and i think that it's like what's so beautifully indicative of that for me is the scene where we see that he cuts pictures of people out of magazines and glues them onto the wall so he can practice facial expressions in the mirror because he's a true empty emotionless psychopath and when you know as he's narrating that we see him like trying to smile in the mirror and it's like the most unbelievable ungenuine looking smile like showing way too much teeth no no warmth in it whatsoever and i think i feel like that's how he handles every interaction in the movie that he's Mm. that he's just he's so cold and lizard like and i think i think it's fantastic but i think that that's interesting that i saw him as so evil and creepy and that you know you got some of that like famous serial killer charisma from him. Yeah. Uh, all right, check it out. You can enjoy reptiles. Okay. You can. I, like, no, I did, I did, and I did enjoy and this and well. I did enjoy this reptile. Like I I thought he was I thought he was great, but like also just like so hateable. Oh well, yeah, I mean like it's a it's the the likable killer. I was mm-hmm. I was almost thinking that we were going to get like a Dexter or something. Like I'll well, never say that word again on the podcast, I promise. Feels, but, the first killing feels justified because you're right. going this lady fucking deserves it. But then he gets to the pensioner. And yeah. yeah. The That's pensioner fucking devastated me, man. I was just like Oh, my God. And I think it's a comment on something like plebeian stupidity, but it's also like... Well, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to get into the home. I found that whole interaction so creepy and unsettling, like... Uh, kind of funny too but like as like just standing there for like a good five minutes watching him try to unconvincingly talk his way into this woman's house this random woman who he's just gone up and knocked on her door and he is so fucking creepy and any normal person would be like oh my god this guy is a fucking murderer like he's his lies are so unconvincing he's so bumbling and clumsy about it and then yes he fucking says he's like oh yeah i'm an insurance salesman and uh i can get you double your pension and like that's it like as soon as he mentions appeal like, to greed appeal to greed and she lets him in. I and... I thought that sequence was pretty funny, actually, just because how <laughs> of how drawn out it is. The the lengthy yes. interlude where he's acting like he's a cop, yeah, but he refusing to the imagine. Oh, you he's you should trying... ask that question. Like it's he's yeah. trying not to physically force himself inside the building. That he's whole... trying not to physically he's force like himself vampire. inside. He has to have permission, he... <laughs> and he's he's taking it in layers. He's like, all right, this 
this layer's not working. This this superficial story is not working. How can I change this so that at least she'll keep the door open? Well, the thing is, too, I feel like so much of his killing that we see in this movie is an exercise in, like, what he's able to get away with. Like, pretty much all of the victims we see, he gives them multiple outs that they never take. And it almost feels like he's trying almost begging them to not become victims. I don't don't see that happening at all in any of the killings. Well, I mean, I I th- I don't think that he's actually trying to do that. I I mean, I think he's bent on killing, but with Uma Thurman, he has he gives her all of these opportunities. You know, he's trying to get her out of the car. He's trying to not have to deal with her saying, "Can't somebody else give you a ride?" With the pensioner, he's telling horrible lies that even somebody with the most basic intelligence would know this person is trying to get into my house to do something skeevy. Right, but all it takes is a little bit of time. All it takes is enough time. The first one I'll give you, but the second one, he's he's trying to uh, he's trying to seem neutral. It's almost like his learning process. Well, like like simple is probably your best example. Even later, like with simple, his girlfriend or whatever, and telling her, I'm Mr. Sophistication, I've killed 60 people or 61. She's like, well, which one is it? He's like, well, it can become any within a few minutes. He lets her out of the house. He lets her go up to the cop car. You know? She and, tries to go to the cop car. She tries to go. Uh, and my even, thing and is- even so, she still comes back inside with him. And then he even lets her lean out the window and scream for help. It's like But that's he, just it. He's trying to figure out where the line is with each one of his victims where they where they've gotten to a point where there is no getting back that's my point point. his ability to manipulate them and with simple you get the most subtle version you get you get his knowing how to say things to keep her roped in and in (laughs) simple Riley Keough, man, ah, oh, and just having seen her with the lodge, I realized yeah, that that's right. and that was the last time I saw you guys. But she devastates me. She devastates me. That character devastates me because he says something when he's screaming to the cop, bragging about his murders, and you know you want to put it on Jacqueline's character. But you can't because you see that even the policeman is just like, this guy's fucking drunk. And she's like, he's just he's just wounded. I'm trying to get to the real him. There's something under that. And he appeals to that by saying something like, because I've been terrible to this woman right over here. Just And Jacqueline is invisible. But but that's that's my point exactly, is that he's testing the boundaries. He's giving his victims opportunities to get away if they're smart. But I I think there's also something to be said going back to the idea of him as the unreliable narrator, because despite how meticulous his recollection is, it's still inherently biased, you know, and Verge even asks him at a certain point, he's like, why are all of the women in your stories so stupid? Like they seem to be 
unreasonably dumb like or unbelievably dumb and i think that that is uh, you know an, an interesting idea because we are getting this only from jack's perspective and we might be seeing these women how he sees them as stupid lambs to the slaughter you know it certainly doesn't help that jack is shown as extremely pretentious and uh, self-aggrandizing throughout the film. That's one of my favorite sequences where he's got the cards and it's going through. I was about to say, I was about to say the Bob Dylan music video type of thing. In a normal film, I would find that absolutely insufferable. Yes. Yeah. But I find it kind of hilarious because it's it's self-seriousness and pretentiousness of Jack himself. Uh, reflecting into it. And what it's a like, hard thing to pull he's off. So charismatic. All of the he's inter- so charismatic. All of the interludes too, you know, are just a a black background with pictures or like video clips. It's like it's just things that he's calling up into his mind, you know, to to illustrate what he's talking about. I love that you don't see Bruno Gans until the last 15 minutes of the movie that like mm-hmm. for the entirety of it like his voice and Jack's narration are always coming from off screen, you know? Yeah, or, yeah. I do have a third take on uh, the situation with Jack sort of putting himself in circumstances where, mm-hmm. like, he could be caught and, uh, f- quote, fate sort of decides otherwise. I sort of, oh I see God. it as Jack testing his, like, heavenly value. Like, as, as Jack sort yes. of earning his, his position and seeing if... He is truly like a chosen one. Like that the, his the fact that he sees the rain as fate at the beginning, and then from then oh. on, he, he he makes attempts to test his fate, right? Um, uh, to see if there is some sort of divine will, because what he is doing is creating great art, and like so, he deserves to live, and he deserves to be allowed to kill these people. Which is also why, to go back to the very end of the film. I also think that there's something to be said that that whole sequence is a projection of Jack's as well. Uh, and that, uh, that yeah, isn't sure. divine. And so Virgil being a projection of Jack also and allowing him that opportunity, it's Jack allowing himself an opportunity to have a fall from grace. And I mean, it <sighs> would it would be characteristic of somebody as pretentious and like sophistic as Jack to put himself in the role of Dante yes. in the mm-hmm. Inferno. And also Satan in that respect. And right. Von Trier being in the role of Dante. He's the one who's created the work and, and Virgil is the one who's taking us through the story. So where do you draw the line? <laughs> this is what's so interesting to me when you start talking about having a director who's got a vision and he's got a mind and he's wanting to create a thing and it's its own world. but And it has to have the same amount of consistency, almost like a person does. When you see it play out over an audience and it gets that much bigger, that's why someone like Von Trier excites me because... I think that maybe not everybody can get into it, but for those who who can let themselves be open to it, it does something strange about being able to look at your own demons, I think. And I don't identify characteristically at all with Jack, but I definitely identify with other people in the film. Think about think about his friend. 
in that sequence where he's in the trailer and he's all he has to say to this guy, the guy with the red robe is I always thought of you as my best friend. And then suddenly, you know, like compliments him. And then the guy's face starts to relax and he starts smiling at him. And it's like, man, I don't know about about depictions of stupidity, but I definitely see depictions of innocence. People wanting to believe that the person they're dealing with does not have evil motives. That it, like it, it's almost like give me any reason not to think that you have evil motives, and I'll want to believe it, and I'll hold on to that that fantasy that as long as it seems like someone doesn't have that motivation in them that they're probably okay i i think it's fascinating to to have sympathy for these women and oh i think you do absolutely have sympathy for them yeah i mean i think you're right like stupidity is like virgil's word you know like why when he asked jack like why do all of these women why are all these women in your story so stupid like why do they allow themselves to be killed when you give them so many outs but i think i think like thematically you're absolutely right like it's not really stupidity it's it's innocence or if anything like naivete like you don't want to you don't want to believe that somebody could be capable of the things that jack is capable of And and i think it's jack's contempt for that it's it's the the tale of his contempt for for that ability even well you get that reflection of uh a desire for goodness in all of the victims, even at near the end where, you know, he had lined up all of the the victims in a row and to he was talking many, about the FMJ bullet. See how many skulls, it could, how many people he could execute with one bullet. And the guy in the front couldn't help himself but to be good and be helpful. And I think that's so indicative of all of the victims in this film. It's not naivete, even, in my opinion. It's a desire to be helpful and to to expand on good in the universe. I don't it's- think I don't think the two are mutually exclusive though. I think you're I think you're right, but I think that there's absolutely naivete in the such ready willingness to believe that somebody won't do something horrible to you just because you do you are good to them. You know, I think that mm. it's it's unfair, you know, that people like like Jack exist in the world. Like you should be able to trust people and and not worry that somebody is going to come into your house and murder you but it it happens and oftentimes and there are so many subtle it's in much subtler ways so you don't even think you know most people aren't gonna (laughs) well yeah i mean it's it's so much of so much of it is completely banal you know and and i think that's what lars von trier was really trying to go for in this movie like he had he said in an interview that the house that Jack built is meant to be a celebration of how evil and soulless life is. And mm. once again, like, that's Von Trier being uh, a complete misanthrope, but, you know, it's... I think it's it's really well portrayed in this movie because in a good world, you know, these people wouldn't 
be victims, you know, and that they that they strive for for goodness and empathy and stuff like that. But, you know, the universe is just like in, in Antichrist, you know, chaos reigns like entropy is the true nature of the universe. And like that structure breaks down. It's a bummer. <laughs> it's a bummer, but it's <laughs> well, really... Well, uh, I mean, there are definitely dark spots, but I think it's almost, at the same time, a way of drawing a parallel between the brightest lights and the darkest darks. Ooh, and you see it contrast. in that illustration with... Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it helps you to define outlines, right? So it's almost the a uh, way of hearkening to Jack's supposed likability in his expression, almost like his phenotype, like he can seem on the outside to be maybe someone who would be entertaining for you. You know, if you weren't someone he chose to kill, maybe you could be around him and like basically enjoy his company. We're only getting to see Jack in his moments where he's killing or he's contemplating it. So we're getting not just Jack's, account of all of these experiences but we're also only seeing jack at very specific nodes in these experiences like you have to wonder how much time he's spent with this poor mother to get oh, her yeah. to trust him around her sons that hey, he's not in his position by duping people's naivete as much as he is able to leverage it Right. Uh, definitely. Well, it's funny. You mentioned earlier that the second incident was the one that like really upset you. And it's interesting for me because I found the second one pretty funny overall. It was the third incident that was particularly upsetting for me. Because the second one can almost be described as a comedy of errors. Yeah, um, with with all of the repetition of the second lady. one. I felt for that lady, and oh, sure. I'm not saying I mean, that absolutely. it's the what. No, it, like I her mean, strangling and the like. She's she's absolutely like in in deep suffering, and you know, like she's at that age demographic where you know she's likely to be manipulated too. I I kind of agree yeah. with you though, Ben. Like at least past that, like her. I think him talking his way into the house is very creepy, and like her murder is horrible. But then the aftermath of him, like, because he's at the beginning of his killing spree sort of and he talks mm -hmm. about how he at the the more he kills the more his compulsions to clean go away so he stopped cleaning eventually but in this one we see him clean up the place meticulously then get into his car and start thinking about somewhere where blood might have landed that he didn't check and goes <laughs> and back amazing in amazing soundtrack it's so funny because it happens the, like the repetition it happens like four times and every time it he goes back in the house three degree. times well, also the the sound that you hear uh, is the same one that they use when they reveal uh, Virgil, and also it's the sound of the pit that he yeah. falls into. I just, cool, cool thing to mention there. I, I the think. the humming, yeah. But all of the repetition in the second incident is drawn out to a comical degree. Whether it's him trying to make a story to get in, even though it is creepy, it is funny and yeah, how. It is. Uh, and how bad unbelievable it. Yeah. it is and as well with all the cleaning he pulls off 
the the smallest, most minute things to look under them, and there's blood under them. Well, to and- the point where it starts getting funny when the cop is nearing and he's still running. Still gotta inside. go back in. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then the cop shows up and he actually talks the cop into going into the house and is telling him that he thinks something bad happened here and that they should investigate that room specifically very closely, (laughs) which is, I don't know if it's like his subconscious wanting him to be caught or his supreme confidence that he's cleaned it so thoroughly that they could come in and do a complete forensic investigation that they wouldn't find any evidence or if it's a combination of those two. It's, 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 also his knowledge that they would find his evidence there because he obviously and pointedly interacts with the scene while he's in the presence of this goody two-shoes cop. Yeah. The cop is one of these same people who seems like he's got that same kind of naivete where it's like, oh, no, I mean, that's this is the crime scene, and now it has, like, there, there's there been a direct interaction with it when I should have locked this down immediately. I don't have any power in going after this guy now. Besides that, Jack has cleaned it so significantly that even if they did find other trace evidence of him there, even if there was blood, anything, he, he's already there. Yeah, the cop and has seen him in the room. There. Yeah, he's there with the cop. It makes any so, ev- any DNA evidence they find circumstantial. That's a good point. Exactly. I, I didn't think about so that. That's why he touches the object right. on the table. But then, of yeah. course, immediately afterwards, he literally he drags the body behind his oh. van all the way back <laughs> and just leaves this this massive trail of blood which is like so funny and how absurd it is but then the right second, up until then the, like the second you start to like laugh at it and be like haha this is so funny slapstick then he gets the body into the freezer and we see like the damage of from yes. having been dragged miles on concrete and that it was the me moment feel so cold inside and then you're yes. just immediately no longer laughing right that is the moment where like they you realize you've been pulled in to yeah. something like that that's where i you immediately came feel you immediately film. feel bad for laughing at the seemingly slapstick gag mm-hmm. how about <laughs> laura palmer showing up wrapped in plastic yeah right <laughs> and it, it's I, I find it that to be a very hard thing to do to set the audience up to with laughter and then to make them feel bad about laughing because very often you can be like well yeah it was framed for me to feel that way and to sort of blame like the the direction of it but here I I didn't feel that way at all. Like it because it's it's so clear in um it, it's so clear of an example that you can just take it as academic and yeah. uh, that's that's hard to do. What a, what a deft hand. Yes, ah, uh, the deft hand, Lars von Trier. <laughs> Maybe well, in my dreams one day I can meet his <laughs> subtle body, and I don't. Then I don't have to deal with him as a person. <laughs> Maybe being, being able to watch his movies is 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 your spirit being able to interact with Lars von Trier's subtle body. Yeah. <laughs> he seems he seems like he would be really bad to be around in real life. Well, he famously got kicked out of cans and banned from uh, can uh, for saying, for I can understand the Nazis. A Whoa. <laughs> yeah. He called himself a Nazi and can blocked him out for a year. And, and the actresses who he'd worked with More very than, recently. More than a year. 
very recently around then were like uh, and Stellan Skarsgård were like no 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 come on Lars is not a Nazi he's a, a troubled man who makes artwork he's a troll he's a provocateur yeah, yeah and a, pro- a troll yeah, uh, he's mean, a, a troll a provocateur is just a fancy word for a troll and <laughs> I like that you say the word misanthrope because it reminds me of Moliere and that makes me happy and that and that's actually a pretty good read. But von Trier for me is just like I, I feel an affection toward him. I don't know. And it, it is definitely not because he calls himself a Nazi. <laughs> it's because he's the kind of guy who's going to be in conversation with the media at Cannes and be like, I'm a fucking Nazi. And it's like, oh, my God. Well, everything that we're dealing with about media right now, think about the pandemic. You know, there's so there's so many perspectives and they are so colorful yeah it's uh, you know it's funny you mention him getting uh, banned from can i think it was longer than a year i think it was more like six and well he didn't return for a hot minute but yeah the band was only i think for a year uh the house that jack built was his grand return to can <laughs> Um, for the first time since that. And I think that it sh- the response to this movie at Cannes is like the perfect dichotomy yeah. of Von Trier in that yeah. more than more than 100 people, including critics, got up and walked out of the premiere at Cannes. <laughs> but those who remained gave it a six-minute standing ovation after the credits. So it's like... It's it's it, remarkable to be able to be an artist that can be that polarizing, that just a hundred people can get up and walk out of your movie because they find it so offensive and disgusting, but then that people still, for six minutes, which is a long fucking time, stand up and applaud ceaselessly because they thought it was such a masterpiece well and i think there's some controversy on the the amount of time that the standing ovation happened but it pleases me to know that it happened i saw a range from six to ten minutes i which is why i said i kept it on the bottom end of that range because you know there's always (laughs) ten minutes seems well there's there's probably just one guy (laughs) there's one dude after everybody else had already walked out just one guy Well, it's so funny you you mentioned all the walkouts because in a way this movie feels like in some respects Von Trier deliberately trying to do things that would make people walk out and upset people, push their buttons. Um, you know, it really fits in line with his troll. Well, I feel like that's provocateur his, aesthetic. That's been his shtick since Nymphomaniac, which I still haven't seen. I haven't seen either, but I I'm more interested in seeing it as sort of a sister film to House That Jack Built, considering how focused Jack is on death. Yeah. Uh, you know, Nymphomaniac being so focused on sex and life, it almost feels like a foil in a respect. I don't know if it actually is. Have you seen Nymphomaniac, Katie? You know, I did see Nymphomaniac. I saw Nymphomaniac at the Britannia Theater in New Orleans, which is a single screen, old school theater. And they did parts one and two back to back. And I remember getting prepared with my little satchel and all the things that I needed going into what? 
I, I don't I don't even know whether what I saw was director's cut or not. From what I remember, what theatrical appearances the film was making at that time were director's cut parts one and two. But considering there's such a huge disparity between the one and the other, I'm not certain. Anyway, saw them both one one after the other. It, it was a lot. And it's a lot of Charlotte Gainsbourg, and it's a lot of Stellan Skarsgård. But for me, the reason I haven't been able to go back to that film was that while I was watching it, I was feeling neutral and then skeptical and then defeated and then fucking angry because mm. the, at the end, the audience laughed. Oh. When the audience laughed at the end, it stole something from me that I can't explain. It 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 was disappointing to an extreme that very few experiences in my life have ever quite approached. So I haven't been able to revisit the film because of that particular experience in the theater knowing that I was going, I don't know if this is pushing that button that I want when I see a Von Trier, and then believing in the aftermath that the end might have done it if the audience hadn't laughed. Well, let me just compliment your boldness to go see Nymphomaniac in a theater, because I frankly... (laughs) can't imagine watching it with anybody else in the room because <laughs> I think it would just be like the most uncomfortable experience. Well, it's also like four and a half hours long. Right. You're buckling in and it used to be pretty common to see porn on the big screen. So it, I don't know. There, there are enough folks <laughs> who are just like, yeah, yeah, it's not it's not some of the hardcore stuff I've seen in the past. So who the fuck cares? And it's art house. Do you th- Let me. Could what it- kind of darkness can you show me? No, I haven't. And this is a bit of a tangent since we're talking about Nymphomaniac. But uh, instead of the house that Jack Sorry, built. Guys. But no, it's fine. I'm, I'm curious. Like, do you think that I obviously haven't seen the movie, so I don't know what actually happens at the end. But mm. d- could the laughing have been? like nervous laughter because they're sitting in a a theater watching uh an art house movie with a bunch of unsimulated sex for four and a half hours it was it was disgust and shame it was disgustful it was disgust and shame laughter it was disappointing it was disappointing i tell you it was it was it was not nervous it That's was a shame. full of disgust Although, and shame. I must say, I was, me and my friend were those people when we went to see uh, uh, the Avengers Infinity War in the theater. Oh, uh, that's acceptable. We you were, can have the disgust, shame, laughter in, yeah, that, in w- that arena. We were, that's fine. We were the only ones, though, and it was the audience <laughs> was, like, obviously full of, like, Marvel nerds who were, like, oh, emotionally Spider-Man. Emotionally <laughs> impacted by the these things in their big dumb comic book movie and me and am my, i allowed to say shallow am i allowed yes. to yeah we've expressed we've expressed plenty of our disdain for okay. disney and marvel movies on the podcast that's nothing oh new God. but like we were we were those people like the disgusted mocking laughter at like things that obviously were not meant to be funny so as sorry as sorry as i am for
for your experience. Thank you guys for being my heroes. (laughs) As sorry as I am for your experience, I I do have to admit that, that I have been that guy before. All right. You'll be that. Then I know my, then I know the audience then. Then I know that the audience was probably a bunch of stuck up theater kid pigs, aesthetic (laughs) pigs. People are just pigging out on all that their rich, piggy, two-lane existence (laughs) kick out on. And that was just how they were, and that was just who they were. And they were like, ha, 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 ha. That's them laughing at Von Trier for trying to teach them a moral lesson. There's a moral lesson in the ending. And and they're going, ah! And Von Trier's like, uh, here it is. You know, here here is the subtlety of this thing. Here's here's me giving you an opportunity to encroach on the subtlety of this thing, and and you're laughing. Okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. I I, I guess that's where we are. Ah. I think I think one thing that I can say that Bernie is I... not the Democratic nominee is all I'm gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> that's my summary of that um... phenomenon. <laughs> You know, I think it's that's worth bringing up. Um, I I was just gonna say that like I one thing that I I do really respect about Von Trier in general is just like his shamelessness. To He's be got able... so much shame though, doesn't he? I feel like he has so much shame, and these you... movies are how he gets it out of him. I mean, maybe that's that's so, but like to bear those shames to the world in like mass media is like that's. So bold, <laughs> like you, well, like you shame can't is something do it in the medium unless you're doing it with the media. Shame like, is you, something you that can't... most people hide, you know. So like, I don't th- I don't know if he really is if he really does have shame. I think he just has thoughts and stuff that he wants to say, and he does it whether people mm-hmm. want to listen or not. And obviously, from your nymphomaniac experience. Uh, there, there are plenty of people out you there who don't, who don't want to experience <laughs> Well, uh, the reason I brought up Nymphomaniac to begin with is, uh, as someone who's seen both, do you think there's any sort of connection between the two, considering death versus life, or... I think it's you know, an interesting, I think it's an interesting proposition, and I would say that... If you were to compare the two, if I was to compare the two just off the cuff, for me it would be that Nymphomaniac is a way of depicting a certain kind of sophisticated femininity, while the house that Jack built is a way of depicting a kind of sophisticated masculinity. And almost like Von Trier dealing with the extremes of these... In the two films. Oh, Mr. Because and Mrs. Sophistication. <laughs> a li- something like that. Something like that. It would be a different form of wisdom because when I say sophistication, I'm talking about I'm talking about Sophia and Sophist. Like, go ahead and take the whole broad concept, bring philosophy in there too. And, and there's there's all this sophism. And Mr. Sophistication is just, you know, on the surface is just communicating something like, I'm going to be precise 
Mr. Sophistication is a precision. That's that's the quality that he's trying to communicate. But the sophists were trying to teach reason without spirit. And then the philosophers take over and they're like, soul is really soul and mind and the relationship between those things. Really just mind. Like, let's go hard, hardcore into mind for a hot minute. And and so there are all these ways of trying to deal with consciousness and Jack's way is as Mr. Sophistication he says all this naivete it's ineffective all these lambs they're ineffective they they are hopelessly stupid and useless what they are there for is to be prey that is the nature of their existence that's the meaning of their existence and I think that that is something like a like the hunter instinct that's encouraged in the males of the human species for reasons far beyond our purview or control. Many, many, many thousands of years of evolution. Uh, and I think maybe nymphomaniac is kind of the converse of that on the feminine side, where what's effective for her character is to chase after really like yearn for and chase after Eros wherever she can hope to try to find it in in her life's experience. And so I, I would say that they're probably related because it's that that gut urge, that desire that motivates them both and from similar places, but different satisfactions. Mm. So whether it's like the kill or you know just the kill or the release. Yeah that walking under the lamp some kind of catharsis oh yeah well there sure is plenty of catharsis in this movie well (laughs) (laughs) i i love the lamp metaphor that they have between kills when he's walking board animation walking between the the street lamps Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. the shadow in front of him diminishing and the shadow behind him growing until it reaches the apex where he's directly beneath the light and the shadow is at its darkest and fully surrounds him and he kills. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And I loved that. That singular point that he's trying to achieve, that yeah. that, that that almost like that wholeness, um, I think can also be compared to the pit that he falls into. It's like that that's him trying to achieve that that singularness. Like and again why I think that he wanted to fall into it. Like well, he wanted to have that fall. And into that, that nihilism. I wonder if it just goes into absolute nothingness, no chance of reprieve, no chance of of re anything, no no activity whatsoever. Maybe that's just his utter annihilation and it's for the good of us all. Yes. Well, I certainly think that that's how Lars von Trier sees it, for sure. I mean, I, I think another... another. Maybe that's his hope. It's like, here's the most evil I can see. Maybe this is how I can destroy it. I think another interesting comparison is Jack's infatuation with, like, photo negatives and how oh, in, yes. in the negative, the... The, the dark point, light. The, the dark light, yeah. The points of light are the darkest points. And how when he falls into that pit at the end, the before we go to credits, we see that image of the pit become inverted. And, like, him falling into that, that dark light. Mm-hmm. Um, loved that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Brings that point home so nicely. I think there's a, an interesting uh, talking about the the banality of evil and how like banal so many of the the murders and and actions in this movie are. I think it's really interesting that like in a lot of his his sort of musings on art and efficiency and stuff, he's constantly referencing the Nazis. Yes. who were like the epitome of the banality of evil and all of these things that he's talking about, like their architecture and the the Stuka planes that wail when they dive bomb. And he mm. got the idea for the, the trying to see how many people you can execute with a single bullet from German mm. soldiers who were low on mm-hmm. ammo, executing prisoners. And it's like, well, he was talking about those those versions of serial killers being the most deft-handed artists that right. he could reference. Like, well, there's them and there's Glenn Gould, you know. Like, right. a, a deft hand seems to be uh, a preoccupation of Jack's. And also just a, a, a fun little Easter egg in all of that is that he's, of course, talking to Bruno Ganz the entire movie, who famously played Hitler in Downfall in that <laughs> uh, the now many times memed uh, scene of, of Hitler freaking out in the bunker, which I do think <laughs> is one of the classic memes. Um, you know, R.I.P. Bruno Ganz. I can't believe they took Best my movies. I can't believe they took my man down in the sewer like that like they did in this movie and made him walk through all that gr- that nasty water as old as he was it was probably a set it's i think no, they, I not think, dogma 95 anymore i think they <laughs> might no i i bet lars von trier took bruno down made into him the sewer. Into I, bet sewer. I bet he did i bet he did bruno. oh i loved that lighting so much it made me think about the wave particle duality of light <laughs> when you have that that circle of light going down with the ripples and the water and how they're oh, undulating. Yeah. It looked like an interference pattern playing out over a wave. And I thought, oh, thanks. Thanks, Lars. You know, like, thanks. <laughs> uh, thanks for letting me be able to go there because – it's one thing to be able to bring up Nazis. It's another to be able to actually contemplate why they're evil. Yeah, why bad? What makes it evil? What What is it about that that we should identify as unhelpful for the progress of our species? And why have people bought into it as helpful and legitimate? There is no way to defeat fascism unless you can find a way to understand the people who buy into it. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to put a lens on it. Well said. I think that's most horrifyingly projected when Jack starts to make an argument for the Holocaust being art. Like, that is where I was just trying to become the couch. Like I was was... really grateful that there were lots of different depictions of atrocity and that it wasn't just Holocaust footage. Because it's so important to remember that our species is so much worse than the Holocaust. (laughs) That's what's so fucked up. Like, the Holocaust was 
fucking awful. Well, this there have been not many holocausts as well. Right. Belgian exactly. Congo, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole world of atrocity and, and an enormous amount of history associated with it. As soon as you have debt and standing armies, according to David Graeber, this kind of shit is just going to be inevitable. I like that you bring up the the fact that like it's it's trying to justify art. It's trying to justify or like like horrors as art. Uh, is Jack is also trying to justify his own existence uh, as like a lion like is an instrument of necessity. Like like if 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 there are lambs, there are lions, and therefore he has a house. He has a place in this world. Um, mm. and so it's this, this monster trying to, to justify himself and where he is. Um, and by taking atrocities and saying that, you know, they too can be seen as this thing that they're not. And right. it's, it's, uh, calling. I think his reflections on like, on like atrocity and genocide and culling and stuff like that really goes to show, you know, just going back to our discussion a moment ago that like. So many of our societal systems are set up for people like Jack to succeed, you know, yeah. just looking at human history and seeing the all of the many holocausts that have happened in our history and like how much cruelty and violence and death and like Lars von Trier is postulating uh, evil and soullessness there is in life. It's like people like Jack, people who think like he does succeed they thrive you know that's what von trier i think is forcing us to look at i think that's so. what i that's what i think he's trying to do is show how easy it is to be taken in by evil and how evil is not just the most obviously confrontational or negative thing you could see right in front of your face it, it sneaks it's insidious it's, yeah well, it's it's oftentimes it's so boring. It doesn't present itself the way it does in movies and stories and stuff like that when there's a hard division between good and evil. Some of the greatest yeah. evil that our species has committed has been bureaucratic, boring, not ex I mean exciting is it's, the wrong word, but like it's boring, worth you know. Yeah. It's worth crediting Hannah Arendt for banality of evil since that came from her. And, and Arendt would know as a Jewish female philosopher who had studied under Heidegger, who had been a Nazi, Arendt would would be able to perceive better than most the banality of evil and to be able to sincerely look on the bureaucrats that that were on trial. There was one specific trial that Arendt was associated with, uh, a former Nazi who had organized the rail lines, the schedules for the rail lines. And this guy wasn't an ideologue. He didn't have anything in him that that sincerely deliberately passionately wanted to do evil he just was doing what was uh unobtrusive for him at the time it, it, he was a clerk ultimately and he didn't have a strong ideological persuasion but would still cooperate with the system because it suited his 
talents or lack thereof. That was the horror of it was that he didn't have any kind of substantial, you know, he's not a, a firebrand rebel or, or, a, or a proud, big chested general. He's just a dude and he can crunch numbers. I mean, I, that's that's why such a common excuse for things like that or people saying, well, I was just doing my job. You know, that's why mm-hmm. that's why we heard that so much at Nuremberg, you know, after the war was over. And and it's like the the fact is, it's like those people, they really believe that, you know, they don't feel like they were responsible for like the the atrocities that that the Nazis were committing. You know, they were just they were just doing what they were paid to do and to have been in a system that so well trained them to not object to that and to just do their jobs and to stand by that so you know, devoutly. And not to be able to object to it too. I mean at, at some level it's like where does your responsibility as a citizen end and your responsibility as a human begin? Yeah, well, I, that's what's horrifying, you know, because like the implication of speaking out against something like that when you're so entrenched in that system is it goes directly against your own sense of self-preservation. Right. And it's so like they would they would the rather that'll stand up. You got to be in the house. They would rather so, just this is why Jack is trying to put this shit together with these dead people. Right. I guess that's what he's saying, you know, it's like all this shit that you see around you is created by the corpses of dead people. There's been so much war and shit that has made it so that things can be the way they are now. It's just a big grave. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, you're good. Um, no, it's true. Like, uh, it's it's fascinating. Like the that concept of othering Nazis, of of viewing them as like comic book villains, and how there's almost a danger in that because we separate themselves from our own societies. We 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 exclude ourselves from being capable. We turn history into fantasy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, ignore the the. the and I mean. Jack turns fantasy into history. He plays on people's imaginations enough to be able to exploit them for his own ends. And then he gets his catharsis and walks away and has no uh, he has no moral attachment to it because well, he doesn't have things. And similarly, like this film is fiction, but these people exist. They have existed. They will continue to exist. You know, there are there are people like Jack out there and like and that they're usually primed for success in and, our own right, societies. Yeah, they, yeah. They're usually successful and they do well. And I think that, you know, that's something that has been a linchpin of horror since like the, the sixties, you know, like the idea of the, the monster next door, the, the monster that is hiding in your neighbor's skin, you know, and could be a commie. You never know. Right. And back then, <laughs> back then, that fear was so acute. And I, I, it almost feels like in this day and age, we've grown so complacent that it's almost like we're not afraid of that anymore. I know. We and need to be people. afraid of pop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> wake up, wake up, sheeple, wake up. <laughs> 
We need more. We need to be more afraid of commies. Hey, They're coming I'm back. <laughs> Jack went into hell and he had that red cape on, guys. He did. So, Jack, what, we're, what you're saying is that Jack, Jack was a the, commie. Jack I mean, this is set commie. during the 70s, so we don't. <laughs> we only get these isolated incidents. We don't know if he was a Soviet sleeper agent sent to embed <laughs> himself. <laughs> huh? Was it seriously set in the 70s? Yeah. The whole movie takes place over the 70s into the 80s, his 12-year killing spree. Oh, weird. For some reason, it felt like the 90s. That's why he's got those big Jeffrey Dahmer glasses. Dang. Dang. Oh, man. What about that van? I want to know what you guys think about the van. I mean, I love it. I want it. (laughs) It it's, is also, the it's also it's also like killer van. it is like the serial killer van, but it's like more brightly colored than you usually expect from like. I a, feel like it's not at all the serial killer van. This is why I'm so con. This is I agree. It, Sorry, it confuses me. The serial killer van is like a GMC 1994 white, but the same length, like all the same forms. Right, but, it's but this white. is before 1994. Got- <laughs> so this is the 70s yeah, version yeah. of the serial killer van when vans so were a little shiny. bit smaller. It's so well kept. Yeah, but, well, that's I mean, because he's obsessive compulsive. But also, like, also like hiding in plain sight. He even talks about that. You know that sometimes he even says sometimes the best way to hide is to not hide at all. And yeah. you know, like, there's something when to be he's said walking for... up and down the outside of that apartment building yeah. with bodies, and nobody fucking notices that. How many different apartments would he have had to walk past to go up and down, what, three or four flights well, of no, stairs? Out? I noticed that there is somebody standing in the window looking out at one point as he's walking wow. by with the body, and mm-hmm. they don't react. Wow. And, you know, I think there there's something to be said for driving this shiny red van all over town, uh, sometimes dragging a plastic-wrapped body behind it. You, you know, know what it is? He's talking about people that go to the movies and don't feel anything. Yeah? That's what I think. You think the so? The people who don't respond. The people who don't respond to the girl who's screaming bloody murder. Help me. Oh, well, I think there's I think there's way more to that than just people who go to the movies and don't feel anything. I think that that's that is like (laughs) acutely something special in our like American society is like a willingness to shut out the sounds of somebody screaming, you know, in the apartment next door because you don't want to get involved, you know. It's yeah. like it's it's that's it's easy, you know, it's just like I was just following orders. It's easy to separate yourself. It's easy to have to be apathetic towards it when you're not directly connected. Like if you yeah. hear somebody screaming, you know, in the next apartment building, it's not in your apartment building. It's easy for you to just turn up the music and pretend like you didn't hear anything than it is to, like, run over there and see if somebody's being murdered. Yeah, because what if it's just people in conversation and somebody went, wow! Exactly, exactly. You don't over to my house just because I screamed. You don't know. You know, it's like, there's that there's that distance, you know? There's that, that, that sense of, like, social isolation that you don't want to be a part of strangers lives you also self-preservation you want to stay insular and yeah, yeah of course like if you if hear coyotes howling in the distance you don't go outside right like if you hear if you hear gunshots outside your apartment building you don't run out into the hallway you know you no. don't know right. like 
So I, you know, there's, there's something to be said for that. That like, even when there's people around, like you can scream for help, but you're still alone. Yeah. How about it? What, our, I'll pose it to each of you. And I want an answer. If you are living in an apartment and you hear repeatedly someone screaming, help me, do you by the third scream, go to check it out? Uh, I wouldn't leave to check it out. You'd probably want to call in a report. Uh, if if mm-hmm. if it's like really bad, like you know, if 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 it persists, then you'd probably maybe like also like you could shout out there. Someone has called the police. Like you you, you never want to say that you did. There are, there are plenty of options there, like to help. Uh, but, I like you know, that. Someone say, like, called someone, the cops. Someone <laughs> called the cops. Never say I called the cops. That's really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> for for reasons that don't need explanation but yeah, like sure. uh yeah well like, i mean at least in this at least in this depiction it's jack and not the cops we know jack's not a cop at least right but fuck i mean ugh, but no cops. like you, you yeah he's you not a, a cop because he doesn't have a badge right yeah he, uh, he's getting it shy polished yeah <laughs> you know i mean i i like to answer your question katie i like to think that I would run to somebody's help if if Absolutely. I heard them screaming screaming like I my answer would generally be yes but I can't take into account like what I would do if that actually happened like if somebody yeah. was actually screaming like would my own self-preservation kick in would i and would, rule rule that shit out right oh, like sorry. I, so you Not know today, i jesus <laughs> I, yeah, it's hard to account for that lizard brain i like i would like to say yes and think that yes i would i would help but can't say that with any certainty and the thing about it too is i respect that bystander syndrome is a real thing you True. know it's way different you know living in a big apartment complex with tons of people and hearing that uh, versus, you know, being in the middle of nowhere with a single neighbor and right. hearing cries right. for help. Right. Because Absolutely. Uh, somebody else can help. Yeah. Why does yeah. it have to be me? Yeah. yeah. And uh, even even in the response of like calling for help, that's the same kind of indirect help. Whereas, you know, if you were living with no one else nearby, I think, at least personally, I would be much more quick to go and help than I would be, for example, in an apartment building. And, you know, they always I've always heard, like, if you are in public and like need help to not just generally scream for help, but to call out specific people specific bystanders like you in the green shirt call an ambulance like my, my nice like something because if you just say somebody call an ambulance somebody hey, call the cops somebody sharing- help me bystander syndrome is real just like ben says and everybody's natural inclination is going to be well somebody doesn't have to be me right like why can't it be that guy but if somebody comes out and is screaming and points at you and says you call the cops call an ambulance you're probably gonna snap too and do it that that... that's genius you're sharing valuable information with your (laughs) listeners i want everyone to remember (laughs) i did not come up with that this is what i've i'm just relaying what i've always yeah i I think that like somebody called the cops thing i said a second ago with somebody right on reddit like two days ago so don't yeah (laughs) but no important things to know know your neighbors you know, that's good. It can can really help. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't that, know my neighbors very well. That so. actually gives me a, a fun aside. I had a I had a roommate who had a shirt uh, that I thought was pretty funny that just said "Somebody do something," 
and that was it. Um, <laughs> and we were we were out at Staples one time, and this elderly man walked up to him with kind of like a grimace on his face, and he said, "Well." Maybe you should do something. And then just walked away. <laughs> well, I mean, he did follow the directions on the shirt. He is somebody, and he did something, something yeah. by coming up to Amazing. him and saying that he should do Amazing. something. You should do something. I think that's respectful. I respect that old man. I just love, like, seeing, like, a statement that is, like, intentionally, like, super vague and... Uh, <laughs> Like, like needing to find meaning in it. Like, it's amazing. Speaking um, of needing to find meaning in things, um, I did have one other thought sure. on uh, Jack's perception. The course of the film is him trying to justify his art. Art, in big quotes. Um, yeah. uh, and I love that at the end, we see him in a pictorial scene. Because oh, yeah. he realizes that he is not the artist he is when i say he realizes it, it implies that it's the reality but like right. he he comes around to perceive it that's how he, he sees that, it yeah. that he is not the artist he is the art i liked that last week's episode um was also uh, about a, a descent into hell a very different hell uh, a greasier hell no, a, a much next, less no. that's next week's episode oh sorry that hasn't we've, come out yet we've done so many episodes <laughs> this week I've, I've, uh, I've, I've lost track no uh, last week's episode we have been recording a lot out of order but uh, last week's episode was Jigoku oh so, my pick. yeah it was uh, Cleveland's pick so a descent into an eastern hell and this was a descent into uh, Dante's western solidly hell. western yeah yeah, yeah. Well, we've we've gone pretty long. Do y'all want to uh, rate this and wrap up the episode? Any other points, Katie? I think that really the only point is you can't know a movie until you've watched it. So if Facts. you haven't seen it, if any of this stuff's interesting, it's a decent watch. I think it's even instructive for people to watch movies that they don't necessarily like. And Von Trier's not for everybody. But I think that this, on the whole, is an enjoyable movie for most tastes. If you're extremely offended by very, very graphic things, probably not for you. But uh. if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not. Mm -hmm. I mean, this one does cross a certain number of lines that even horror often doesn't like, like, like showing like murdered children and and mutilation of children. Wow, that's that's a huge line that generally should not be crossed. Like, and this this film is a rare exception where grumpy. Oh my fucking god! Yeah, Yeah, I feel you. We didn't touch on that because that's kind of hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. And it it goes back to the use of violence that you know was brought up at the beginning. Like, if if it was not for the purpose to to... experience yourself. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for the purpose to show you why it's bad, I, I don't I don't think it would be justifiable. But in that rare context, I, I think that that was a line that that was OK to cross. How well, perverse can a mind get? <laughs> I mean, Lars von Trier begs that question every day, I think. <laughs> um, uh, well, Katie, I think I, I probably know your rating already, but this uh, was your pick. And so uh, uh, you get to go first on uh, what would you rate the house that Jack built out of five? I give it a 4.5. Oh, the, surprising. The point five for me is my own spiritual excess, which rivals Von Trier's ego. 
Uh, and I want to believe that maybe there can be some redemption for the darkness of the depiction of that character and that that there was a gratuitousness about it that I think betrayed um, almost like Von Trier was whining a little bit about not being able to grow or something. I For me, that point five is where Von Trier can go in the future that I hope will allow him to make more films. That's interesting. Four point five. I I, uh, I surely expected that you would give it a perfect score. I um, love it. And, I think uh, it's a perfect film, but... Yeah, this that was doesn't my, mean it gets a perfect score. <laughs> <laughs> this was this was my first time seeing it, and uh, for me, Lars von Trier is uh, equatable to like a night of binge drinking. Like it's <laughs> it's fun, it's good to 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 do every now and then, but afterwards, it always leaves me miserable and. Uh, questioning a lot of things and and you know not something that i that i want to do every single night um so like von trier is that for me i can't always handle von trier but when i'm when the mood is right like he always like really powerfully delivers and i think there is no difference uh for this film um, I'm going to give it a perfect five out of five. I did not find any real flaws with this. Like, as there are no technical ones. As, there are no. It is beautiful to look at. It is beautiful. Even the even the artworks that Jack makes are beautiful. As difficult as some things are to watch, and as just like dark and just like cold it makes you feel a lot of the time like i mean it's it's uh an incredible work of art i think and if you uh are brave enough to stand and look it in the face then like you'll get a lot out of it i think i think that's absolutely the case um yeah so a perfect five for me i knew i was going to give this film uh a five like uh, as soon as the credits started rolling, like I, I um, it, it struck me <laughs> very deeply. See, what, what's very interesting for me is I don't have that same association with with Von Trier um, and d- went into the podcast not even realizing that like the general hopelessness was was a part of his own personal philosophies. I saw this film as just a a depiction of like of that like that that zenith of evil like of that dark hole like finding the darkest like hole you could find like dark in humanity yeah. exactly like the, that is jack and it works very well as a standalone piece you don't have to have yeah and i think seeing it as that without like it being tainted by trier like without it being um sort of affected by that philosophy I finished the film still seeing good in the world. I still uh, saw, you know, like just, if anything, it gave me more appreciation for life. It gave me more of uh, a love for like the, 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 like the lamb of things because like of the, the, the great risk you take at being a good person because these people are out there. There's still beauty in the world. And I appreciate it so much more having to, to suffer in these moments. Um, and having to look these these realities in the face, 
Uh, so mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely five for me. And you know whether that was his intent or not, that's certainly how I read it, and uh, I I hope for the better. Well, when I first when we first finished this film, I was having a hard time deciding between four and a half and five, but. With time to gestate, I realized a lot of the the elements that annoyed or upset me were very much intentional. And whereas, you know, the worst of Von Trier can feel like he's being provocative and button pushing just for the sake of button pushing or being provocative, this film had enough depth to move beyond that and feel like it was actually intentional and trying to convey something with that. And even more so, I I found a lot to glean from it being metatextual on the nature of Von Trier and mm-hmm. how he views his work. And in that respect, I came to appreciate it a lot more. I'm thankful we had the time to give this a couple days to gestate after yeah. watching it um, so I could collect my thoughts. But this is this is a five-star movie. I think everything it does to frustrate or annoy me, it's done with intent. And there's ideas behind what it's doing with those things and why it's doing those things. I guess I guess you're right. Uh, I'm not going to take my rating back, but if I'm rating the film itself, it's a five out of five. If I'm rating if you want, if you want to give it a five out of five, you can. Transcendental transcendental object at the end of time is what I'm getting at. And I think that's what Von Trier's (laughs) getting at. And that's kind of what I rated originally. It was like, wait. Are you pushing us to the next level of our evolution? I is that what you're doing, Lars? There, I'm four and a half out of five. There's four. no platonic ideal of a film. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think I think that considering that, I would still be okay to put this with uh, the rest of our golden pods as. Uh, as a, a, a unanimous perfect film because, well, I don't know, Katie says it's perfect, and even though she gave it a 4 out of 5, that still makes it's our perfect. average a 4.9, so... I mean, honestly, it's like a 7. It's like a 7. It, it's the transcendence of an 8. It's like 8... <laughs> See, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think we can... I don't think we can have this be it's, a 4.9 average and not... It's a special film. It's a special film. Yeah. Ah, ah. You know, I do it's, think uh, one, one last point i i want to bring up um to sort of go back to what you were saying when you were giving your rating cleave and how you could still come out of it like seeing some good i was very surprised to see jack actually fall into that pit based off of what i have come to expect from lars von trier i was fully expecting him to be rewarded for his confidence and tenacity and to make it to the other side and ascend into heaven. I think that would have been the most nihilistic, misanthropic <laughs> way it could have gone in a way that feels very Von Trier. And I w- did actually read in a little bit of an interview that he was originally planning on ending it that way. And then he started <laughs> thinking about Hitchcock and what he considered the classic ending for like a suspense like killer film. And that in the Hitchcockian fashion, the the killer does 
does get what's coming to them and does fall in the end. And so he decided to have Jack fall. Well, I think by using, like, the negative reversal at the end, he gets to have his cake and eat it, too. I mean, maybe, yeah, kind of. But I I do think that, like, I was fully expecting Jack to fucking, uh, uh, much like Dante, uh, uh, hell is the only first part, is only the first part of his quest. And that Mm. it ends, and that it ends in paradise with his love, you know? Like, (laughs) what I love, too, is, like, him falling into the pit, like, that's, that's all in his own mind. That's in his own perception. Like, we don't actually know if he even dies there. So how is Jack... Jack redeemed. I wonder if hell is exactly what Von Trier put on the screen and it's what we live every day. I, and yeah. it, <laughs> that there that there are that there are ways to show windows through it and that the hope is that Jack can be redeemed because it doesn't do any of us any good to have them running around. Yeah, I mean, they're better off in the pit than up here with us, I guess. Uh, Maybe there's a way to annihilate cruelty out of ourselves. I, uh, I sounds hope. like we gotta hunt the hunters. Uh, I feel tired. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, a right response. It's a, it's a, it's a very I don't uh, on this planet anymore. But I am tired. Uh, well, have a, have a nap. <laughs> God damn, I think that shows how fucking old we are. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah, me too. Fuck it. Um, well, uh, much like the house that Jack built, this has become a uh, long, tiring, but very satisfying affair. Um, I have really, I've really enjoyed this. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, thank you, Katie, for coming on and enlightening us with so many of your very astute uh, readings and thoughts. Um, you guys are full of light, man. I know that anytime I come off. here, it's <laughs> it's going it's going to be the positive and not the negative, not the dark light. I hope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, since we have gone so long, uh, we'll skip the sponsor for this week. Uh, won't make Cleveland do that. Uh, something about lamps. Think- there you go. All right. Cleveland's uh, dog should be the sponsor. Okay, this yeah, is brought to you by Piglet, my doggo. I haven't really talked about it on the podcast, but uh, yeah. <laughs> she's always sitting there having an absolute fit while we record. Uh, if you ever hear a jingle, <laughs> that's her collar. jingling, some, uh, huffing. some huffing and some snorting. I know that shout that out has, to all uh, the doggos out there. Shout out to all the doggos sharing sharing room with your with your humans, and especially deaf doggos. As you the know, one, uh, as the one who edits this podcast, I can confirm that I do not edit out uh, the dog noises. So they, they have definitely made it in. Uh, After before. a while, it's it's hard to, I'm sure it's hard to tell between Piglet and us anyway. Like, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're the real Piglets, aren't we? It's little little squealing piggies. <laughs> it makes you think. Really does make you think. Um, well, I'm going to wrap this up. If you like the show, uh, go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and a nice review you uh next week i forgot about that we uh, uh i actually just finished editing this morning the episode that will be going up next week an equally a- provocative and button pushing <laughs> film yeah well the next 
episode is uh, is Ben's choice, and he chose for us to watch and talk about the Greasy Strangler. And uh, I think that in many ways that was a similarly exhausting experience. Uh, and it certainly elicited a lot of feelings. Uh, out of the three of us, especially Cleveland and myself, I think it's, I think it's a fun episode. Our general confusion and, and pain and physical torment, confusion and dismay at what that movie is, uh, will make for an entertaining listen. So uh, make sure you tune back in next week to listen to our thoughts on the Greasy Strangler. Completely opposite killer. <laughs> Completely opposite from Jack. They, they were more defeated by the end of that movie. Oh yeah, I was than, way more. Uh, I was way more Trier. defeated by the Greasy Strangler <laughs> than by the house that I Jack built. Wholeheartedly agree. But otherwise, I won't say anything about it. You'll have to listen to the episode for yourself. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Pod People Pod. If you're not subscribed to us on some podcast platform, we do post all of the episodes when they come out on Twitter, so you can find those there too. Uh, also, be sure to follow us on letterbox.com slash podpeoplepod for a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those reviews. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DeepStateOzzy. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Sheets. And I'm occasionally tweeting for LightArc Studio as we continue to push out uh, the next big patch for It Stares Back. Check it out on Steam. We're in early access right now, so... Uh, pretty good price big content update coming in the future tower call yes it's gonna be good it's gonna be good uh you can also check out my uh my paintings on art station uh as well uh search cleveland Mosier and i'll pop right up katie do you have anything i just want to thank like to you plug? guys so much again for having me i'm so grateful anytime whenever you talk want. about these wonderful movies with y'all um if you guys are on Instagram, you can see pretty pictures at Lambly Optic. I'm on Twitter at Lambly Optic, but I'm not there that often, to be honest. And I'm on Facebook at Lambly Optic. So I'm semi-regularly posting very thorough essays on my website, www.lamblyoptic.com slash blog, but only if you really have the time. Well, I would say if you've if you've enjoyed listening to uh, Katie's readings of these films that we've talked about, this is your third appearance, Katie, and it definitely uh, it won't be the last. But uh, definitely go check out uh, that Lambley Optic blog and uh, read some of. I'm so glad I didn't fuck it up. Oh no. <laughs> no, if uh, never worry about that. If anybody's ever Von Trier, you know, Von Trier, it's like as soon as you say you love the guy, it's like, oh man, here if, it comes. If if any if anybody's ever gonna fuck anything up on this podcast, it's gonna be one of us doofuses. So you don't have to worry about that. And whenever you're on the show, you're in excellent standing. Yeah, we'll have you on again eventually to do uh, Antichrist. I'm sure. Yeah, oh yeah, I need to see oh. it. Uh, well, you know, I'm doing a Fright Night, so maybe I'll send you guys the list of movies that I'm watching, scary movies on Fridays at my house with my roommate during quarantine, oh, and, uh, yeah. and see if maybe you guys want to talk uh, to both of us about one of the movies that we see. Oh, yeah, that would yeah. be fun. That Absolutely. sounds like a blast. Have you watched Repulsion yet off of that list? Not yet, but it's on the list. Oh, man, that's one I really want to cover, so... Oh, shots fired. 
Well, uh, there are many, many uh, possibilities for the future. Thank you so much for joining us again, Katie. And we will be looking forward to having you back on the show very soon. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, if you're brave, come back next week for the Greasy Strangler, uh, because bravery is required. Um, I'm going to go mope in a closet. Good night, everybody. Good night.